From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. Pascal Santamon has been making headlines as one of the driving forces of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD's, plan to overhaul global corporate taxation. But his tenure is coming to an end this month. And as it so happens, Pascal is in Washington for some G20 meetings and agreed to sit down with us. He spoke with Bloomberg tax reporter Isabel Gottlieb earlier today, which, by the way, just happens to be the French policy wonk's 54th birthday. We wanted to find out more about what he's accomplished at the OECD and what still needs to get done, and about whether it actually will get done. Here's Pascal's conversation with Isabel. So you've been in your role for the last decade. Um, Reflecting back, what do you see as the most significant work the OECD has done in that time? Um, And are there things the OECD did in your tenure that may have flown under the radar? things you want to mention, and other work that's going on now that people should be paying closer attention to? Well, what a question. Good uh, morning. Very happy uh, to be with you. Uh, Listen, what we've done, I think, can be summarized in, in, in a few words, which are international tax reform. We had an international tax framework outdated, dating back to the League of Nations, I mean, an old economy. Uh, And we have, with the support of the G20, because of the financial crisis, we have reformed the international tax framework through tax cooperation, exchange of information, the end of bank secrecy, but also the BEPS work for base erosion, profit shifting, changing the rules on tax treaties, transfer pricing. And and in, in a more innovative manner, we have introduced a new set of international tax rules which did not exist, which is to incorporate in domestic legislation what's happening across the border, which, which is kind of intertwining tax legislation, uh, which is a new concept uh, that emerged through the work we did on Action 2. You may remember the hybrid mismatches or, or CFC legislation. Pillar 2 is, is just the achievement of, of that trend. So that's what we've done, and uh, we've done that with something like a profile, I think, with interest in the G20 and all that. Many other things we do, which may be below the radar screen, uh, we, we used to do them. We have increased the work there on tax policy, advising governments on their tax policy, trying to come up with horizontal surveys on, on tax policy issues like climate change. How do you tax carbon? Should you tax carbon? What are the um, social consequences of taxing carbon, the competitiveness uh, issues related to that? This is work which I think will be extremely visible in the next decade, uh, and that's why the new Secretary General of the OECD, Matthias Korman, is launching this inclusive forum on carbon mitigation approaches, because that's going to be the big thing, so it's soon to be on the radar screen. But we've done many other things. I mean, the implementation and exchange of information through the Global Forum, building inclusivity with many members in our bodies, the work on tax administration with the Forum on Tax Administration, and uh, and many other uh, things which may uh, sound small, which are not, in particular, the support of developing countries. And one of my flagship uh, initiatives is this Tax Inspectors Without Borders that I think is um, um, not uh, known well enough. Uh, and uh, it's an extremely good initiative. So you see, we've been all over the place. But but what is um, what is common to all that is the reform of the international tax framework in an inclusive manner. And-
And um, for you personally, um, can you briefly talk about your next steps, what, what you're working on, what's next, and um, sort of what led to that decision? So uh, after 15 years at the OECD, and you know, I started with uh, establishing the global form on transparency, cracking down on bank secrecy, and then started as a director and launched BEPS 10 years. It's draining. I mean, I still have a lot of energy, but uh, maybe sometimes I lose patience in the negotiation and all that, and we're moving to a new phase. And this new phase will be about implementation. It's going to last 10 years. I'm 54. Ten years' time sounds like an eternity, and uh, I want to have new challenges. So I'm going to move to a private practice, but not on tax planning of the stuff, which I would have found cheap, in a sense. I mean, probably bringing a lot of money. Uh, but uh, uh, what I would like to do, and I think I'm good at, I hope, is uh, to tell narrative, to build narrative, to explain complex stuff in simple terms to to decision makers, uh, to help them make the decision. That's why I'm joining a firm, which is a, a PR, strategic uh, advice uh, firm. But I will also uh, keep a, a foot in, in tax uh, by taking teaching activities uh, in a university. It's not yet uh, official, uh, but it's likely to be in Switzerland. And uh, there, I hope I will head the tax policy center to try to keep, I mean, to, to try to develop a new program which is teaching tax policy. Uh, it used to be taught only in Harvard in one LLM program. Nobody teaches tax policy. You teach tax law and in exchange for that you get tax lawyers. I mean, I love tax lawyers, but maybe we need more of tax policy makers and that's the goal. And finally, on a more personal note, I'm, I'm writing right now a book, which I hope I'll finish soon, which could be published next year. It's in French because my mother tongue is French, but it will be translated into English. And, and the book will be about how we crack down on tax haven because that's, that's a juicy story and a story which I think is worth telling. Diving a, a bit more into some of the work. Um, so almost exactly a year ago, um, nearly 140 jurisdictions joined this big October agreement on the two-pillar solution. And that was pillar one, the reallocation of the largest multinationals' profits, um, and pillar two, the global minimum corporate tax. So can you sort of take us behind the scenes on, on how that deal came about? And um, as you were working on bringing countries together into agreement, what did you think was going to be the toughest part of that? And what, what actually ended up being kind of the biggest challenge? Wow. So how did we get to a deal on the 8th of October last year with these two pillars? I mean, pillar one is about the reallocation of taxing rights among countries on the largest companies and most profitable companies with a new nexus, meaning you can be taxed in a country without being physically present, which so far has been the rule. And pillar two being a global minimum tax of... Uh, 15% effective, effective being extremely important. So how did we get there? I mean, it's not an idea randomly which popped up at some point. It's, it's just the achievement of an extremely long process, which is a 15-year-long process. We can say that it started with global financial crisis in 2008 and the end of bank secrecy because this started the tax cooperation process, getting countries to speak to each other and recognize that even though they are sovereign from a tax perspective with globalization, they lost their sovereignty and they had to interact with each other. And, and that gave BEPS. And, and during BEPS, we identified the issue of 
harmful tax practices and, and different techniques to avoid taxes, we've I think fought them quite efficiently, but we still needed a safety net. And interestingly, it's the US and, and the Trump administration, the US Republican Senate, which decided to implement fully the BEPS project and to go beyond and say, we, we need a safety net. And guilty, the global intangible low tax uh, income, uh, the minimum tax introduced by Trump, is this safety net. It could be more robust, and that's why the country said, well, we should draw on this, but move to what we call the jurisdictional blending, meaning you look at the effective tax rate on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis and not on average. But, but there was appetite. To, to draw on what the Republicans did, which was to draw on the BEPS work. So you see the, the filiation uh, here of the actions. Probably the most challenging, uh, even though that is quite challenging, in mean, getting 141, actually 37 countries to agree on a global minimum tax, on the design, because it's an extremely complex design. You know, it's you have different blades. You have uh, the income inclusion rule for the headquarter country, the under tax payment rule for the source country, but also uh, the top up tax for the intermediary countries of the investment hub. So an extremely complex mechanism, which comes together with a subject to tax rule to satisfy developing countries, which said maybe we won't get much out of that. Well, they're wrong. They will get a lot out of that. But that was the, the perception when we concluded the deal. Then you, you, you have pillar one, which is even more complex, because pillar one is about a multilateral agreement. I mean, pillar two is a multilateral agreement, but it has to be implemented through domestic legislation. So you have to come up with model rules, and then countries do what they want with them. Pillar one, you need all the countries to agree common rules in a multilateral treaty. And when you have, among these countries, a, a small economy like the United States of America, which does not have a parliamentary system, where Treasury is negotiating but cannot commit Congress, you have a lot of complexity. And, and the size of the US, which is a world in itself, such as multinational companies in the US, may not be interested. What's in there for them? So managing all that in a, an extremely fast negotiation is, is a tremendous challenge. But I think we're getting there, and the multilateral convention will be ready on time by mid next year. Then we'll see what happens in terms of implementation. I know there are questions, uh, but for me, what is out of question is the fact that this will happen. It's, it's obvious. It will happen. Uh, it's just a question of, of time. Um, when I say will happen, the MLC will be, the multilateral convention will be ready by June next year. When will it be ratified? There, there may be a question, but again, this will happen. What do you think has to happen for the U.S. Senate to say yes to pillar one? That's a very good question. I mean, a multilateral convention requires ratification by the Senate of 67 senators. So you need bipartisanship. And we've known that since the beginning. I know at some point the administration said maybe we can go with 50. It's not the case. I mean, the multilateral convention will change bilateral treaties. You need bipartisanship. Now, I realize in this country, talking about bipartisanship already is a serious challenge. So what do you need? You need a political environment where having bipartisanship on this issue is, is, is a possibility. No, it's difficult. It's a difficult proposition. How do you make it happen? One, 
by having a positive narrative, and maybe that's what we've missed by being too techies and too about too much about tax. We haven't said the nice story, which is this multilateral convention will provide massive tax certainty. It's a new world, a new brave world for companies. There is a lot of interest. One, it's not about increasing taxation, which I hear too often. To say, oh, we're in scope, we don't like being in scope. Come on, in scope means that you reallocate taxing right. Instead of paying it here, you pay it there. Now, I understand that today you may pay it here or locate your profit here in a low-tax country, and as you will move the profit to the market jurisdictions where the level of tax is a bit higher, Okay, there may be a, a net impact on the amount of tax uh, you, you pay. But still, it's fundamentally a reallocation of around 200 billion euros of tax base. So it's not about increasing taxes. But it's about, and that's the positive narrative, it's about securing your tax position, not with one or two countries, as is the case through advanced pricing agreements but among 140 countries. It's absolute tax certainty. I understand we need to, to, to prove the case. We need to demonstrate that it's going to be effective. But that's what we're working on, and companies should be enthused and move there. So we need to build that. And of course, in addition to that, you have the less positive narrative, but still good. This will prevent American companies from digital service taxes, from pharmaceutical taxes, which I imagine may be the next phase. You know, DSTs, digital service taxes, are the flavor of yesterday. What's the flavor of tomorrow? After COVID, pharma or whatever new uh, rent which will emerge in any sector. And we need tax peace. The world is not doing well. We're moving away from peace. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. Look at the tensions with China and others. So we need tax peace. And this deal is about tax peace. And, and if you put it in perspective, in the G20, which I'm attending this week here in Washington, you see tensions. The only area where you have relaxed finance ministers around the table is the tax area, because that's where we've, kept, we've kept the, the bridges open between the countries. And that's, that's an important one. So to go back to your question, and which is a domestic question, a national question, how do you mobilize 67 senators? You need a positive narrative. And I'm sure that the team, once I've left, will be able to come up with that because there is a good narrative. And where are, is the U.S. multinational business community at this point in time um, on Pillar 1? Uh, has, has their stance changed? Have, um, have you seen companies kind of get behind the work more as the work has gone on? So to be honest... I think the U.S. business community is not yet there. You have a few companies which are vocal, positive, in particular those which are in the scope of DSTs, which say, well, better to have a multilateral solution than being taxed. Because what's at stake here is being taxed on net income, that's the multilateral solution, complex, or being taxed on gross income, which is the digital service taxes, which is bad taxation, which is double taxation. So the Companies which are likely to be in the scope of DSTs or which currently pay DSTs say, well, we prefer to have a multilateral convention. The others look at that um, from a distance. We don't feel too strong an engagement. 
And we understand, is there urgency? Will it ever happen? Will you spend a lot of resources on something which may be unlikely because you need bipartisan agreement to get it ratified? I think they are, however, looking into the dials. When we did the public consultation, we had serious comments. These were not just, you know, a few papers written by tax lawyers and saying, well, interesting. It was real contribution on this is how you should design it. Now, we really need, because things are moving fast now with the drafting of this multilateral convention in the coming months. So I guess business will wake up, will be engaged. And as I said, even if some have doubts that this will be ratified next year, let's see in a month's time what the outcome of the election here is. But even if there are doubts, this will be the blueprint for the next environment, for the, for the world to come, for the new international tax framework for the largest multinational company. So business is not yet fully there. They're not absent either. You have only a few businesses which are agitated against, but, but that's, that's a small voice. You have a few businesses, larger, in favor of it. You have those in between, which are a bit silent, but they're looking into this. So the work still needs to, um, to, to happen in terms of engagement of the business, but, but we don't feel, as was the case in 2012 when I launched PEPS, I mean, a massive opposition of companies saying, I mean, what on earth are you doing? Go home, go back home. When do you foresee Pillar 1 being fully implemented? Um, and maybe there's a sort of caveat of the U.S. election going one way or another. And then what might that look like? Um, and for example, are we thinking about Pillar 1 in its full form in all of the, you know, as we've seen in all the building blocks and consultation papers, um, coming into being via a signed multilateral convention within the next couple of years? Or is there a scenario where sort of pieces and concepts of Pillar 1 are kind of adopted and, and the whole thing comes in like that? So when it when it is uh, when is it implemented? First, when is it drafted? When do we have the multilateral convention? By July next year. That's clear. So now we need <coughs> to draw on the public comments on the two batches. You know, we, we have three batches of, of, of features of the um, pillow one. The first batch was issued in July. We had comments. It's about uh, revenue sourcing, tax-based determination, the design of the marketing and distribution, safe harbor. And, and so th these are the first um, features. We have comments. We'll go back to them and we'll have to finalize. We have a second batch coming out this week, which is about tax certainty and tax administration. There will be a third batch, probably a year-end, on unilateral measures. With all that, the business community, the staffers on the Hill, all the stakeholders here in the U.S. and outside the U.S. will have a fair understanding of what the features, the dials are. Based on their comments, countries will negotiate. That's January, February, March. And, and the reason why we postponed by one year the conclusion of the multilateral convention was precisely to take into account the American situation where you have an election. So that the new Congress, I mean, the new elected Congress, will be involved if they wish so, <clears throat> and will help design the US position. Because what 
U.S. partners need is to understand what the U.S. position is, which is Treasury, combined with what could be ratified by Congress. So, so you need to incorporate that constraint into the negotiation. And this is why we are moving to this um, new timeline, which is July. So the MLC, will the, the hard negotiation, the wrap-up of the negotiation will be probably in March, April for the signing in July. When is it implemented? Well, <clears throat> one sign, you need to ratify. And we'll see in the US whether there is appetite. If Congress has been involved, has helped design, maybe there is a chance for ratification. If not, we'll see. Countries will move. They will implement Pillar 1 by ratifying Pillar 1. There may not be the critical mass of countries the US doesn't join. And then the other countries will say, well, the US hasn't joined. The US recognized through the U.S. tax reform in 2017, that the allocation of taxing rights is wrong. So it started with the Republicans. The U.S. and the Biden administration has recognized that this allocation of taxing rights is wrong because market jurisdictions should get a portion of the rent which they don't get today. The U.S. committed to fixing this. The U.S. doesn't do that, so we'll grab it. I think that's obviously what's going to happen, and that's maybe where, only when, the U.S. business will wake up and say, hey, hey, hold on, it's difficult. So, so will we have a smooth process of implementation of the package, or will it take some hiccups? That's to be tested, and I hope there will be no hiccup, but uh, I don't know about that. What is for sure is that it's a package. I mean, it's, 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 it's one instrument. It's not, oh, we take revenue sourcing here and, uh, and the MDSA, the marketing distribution safe harbor there, and not the rest. No, it's, it's a full package. And part of this full package is about tax certainty, which is instrumental, key. You cannot have, I mean, new taxing rights without the tax certainty. And that's extremely important from a U.S. business perspective, I would think. Um, we've been focused a lot on what U.S. acceptance of, of Pillar 1 would have to look like. Um, looking beyond the U.S. for a moment, um, developing countries have been pretty vocal throughout the process about um, wanting to make sure they get enough revenue, um, a simplification of, of the rules they're dealing with now. Um, and a few of the issues that are still outstanding, uh, withholding taxes, for example, uh, treatment of withholding taxes under Mount Day, which we haven't seen a building block um, uh, consultation paper on, um, is one that development countries have been focused on. Um, do you think that the, the sort of final outcome of this deal will be something that developing countries will feel they're able to sign on to? And, and how are you negotiating the balance between what they want, what developed countries want, and kind of what the U.S. is saying? It's a negotiation with 140 countries. So you have the U.S., big chunk of the negotiation, but the others matter too, of course. Now, developing countries are diverse. You have emerging economies like India, very large market, Brazil, a couple of others. You have small developing countries in Africa and elsewhere, and they are not necessarily always lined. They have different perspectives. But you also have small European countries, large European countries. So you have a wide diversity. And our job, my job, was to get all these countries to come to terms. Now, developing countries are vocal, and they are right to be vocal. 
they have their own concerns. They say, we are allocated 25% of the rent of companies based on sales. There are not that many sales in our countries. One. Two, um, maybe we are better off with simple taxation based on gross income, on transactions, and DSTs may be better, which is why Kenya didn't uh, join the deal uh, last year. Uh, these countries say, well, we reached a deal where we have a quarter of the rent allocated to us, but now it's all inclusive. We wanted a high-end trip to the Seychelles and we end up in all-inclusive in the Bahamas because uh, with holding tax and with MDSH, whatever we have already secured, we're going to lose or it's going to not be an addition that we'll get. So 25% is not enough. Fair enough, as comments. But on the other hand, what happens if you don't join? You do DSTs or other taxes, and in return you get Section 301 and some trade tensions. You can see that the U.S. is currently negotiating a trade agreement with Kenya, and it's part of the conversation. So it's a question of balance. I would think that developing countries' concerns are largely about simplicity, something which they can implement. And I do think that there are ways to address their concerns, which are agreeable by all countries. I, I will mention the concept of de minimis, which means that if the amounts at stake on withholding taxes and others are extremely small in a country, you don't need too sophisticated regime. It's not India. It's not China. So I'm pretty sure that in the design, there are ways to accommodate these countries. Uh, this is the case with arbitration. Will you go for arbitration for, I mean, $3? $3? No, the answer is obvious. And, and this can relax these countries without creating uncertainty. So there are ways to address these concerns. These concerns are legitimate. And, and the growth one day will come from these countries. So we need to anticipate. And that's why I'm so proud I built this inclusivity in the global forum and in the inclusive framework because these countries must be at the table. Now, being at the table, you have some benefits, you have some obligations which are about agreeing. And uh, I, I think we need to be careful to keep the engagement and, and not to end up into rhetoric, uh, which is something I always fear, because rhetoric is, is, is bad uh, for the world, is bad for uh, reaching an agreement. You can see some, some risks uh, in the UN, for instance, with some countries just coming to speak instead of negotiating. So that's why it's very important that the inclusive framework takes into account the views of developing countries. Looking at some of the last issues still to be fully negotiated, um, the unilateral taxes um, consultation paper you mentioned would come out by the end of the year. Um, again, details on withholding taxes. Have these been sort of the, the trickiest ones, and, and that's why they're still to come? And, and what is so difficult about these remaining issues? Probably, yes, they are among the most complex issues. I mean, let's not underestimate the complexity of the thinking, of the engineering behind that. What is a marketing and distribution safe harbor? How do you take into account withholding taxes? Are withholding taxes um, uh, taken by, by source countries, uh, taxes on, on, on the rent? They were not explicitly mentioned in the agreement, but were they not implicitly mentioned? That's the debate. And in the course of a negotiation, 
guess what? I mean, you will fight based on the different arguments you have. I'm confident that at the end of the day, something in the middle of the road will be, will be um, agreed because this is what makes sense and countries know about that. But yeah, we are confronted to new concepts for a fundamental reason, which is we keep the arms length principle for routine transactions, for all the stuff which is simple. It's, I mean, simple relatively routine, we have that. But we add a new system which fundamentally is based on unitary taxation. This is completely new. The way to determine the tax base in you is new. The, the, the way you, 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 you decide how an entity is profitable or not, whether it's profitable or not, has to be completely changed because it's, it's about the unitary taxation. It's about moving away from the entity approach. So how do you translate that in a world where you keep the underlying, which is about the Amsterdam principle? It's complex. Now, some say, oh, it's too complex, let's not do it, but tax is complex. And what I like saying is, imagine that uh, we, we are in 1928, and I'm going to present to you on this radio show the new model tax convention. Everybody would shout, it's so complex. I mean, when I started in the business and I, I negotiated tax treaty, I read the tax treaty, I say, what is this about? I don't understand a word of this. So it, tax is complex by definition. What matters is that it gives the right outcome in a simple manner, whatever complex the mechanic is, and we're in the complexity of the mechanic right now. So over the last few years, the international tax world has been talking nonstop about pillar one and pillar two. We've been writing about it nonstop. Um, sort of Take us forward five years, ten years. Um, what what will be the equivalent issue? What is going to be the the international tax concept or question that everyone will be grappling with at this level of intensity? I, I see one, which is uh, the the taxation of carbon uh, and environmental taxation. That that's the big thing ahead of us. There is climate change. I say it even in this country. It is happening. It has to be addressed, and there is, I mean, it will not be addressed without economic mechanisms, and among the economic mechanisms, you have the price of carbon. So this thing will not go away, and it's extremely difficult. The political economy of the reform is extremely complex. People don't like paying taxes on carbon in this country and in all the other countries on Earth, but we have to get there. There will be spillovers. If countries move, as we see with the European Union, you need to put in place border carbon adjustment, and there are trade spillovers. So very complex issues. There is urgency. Countries take too much time, but we understand why some time is necessary to find the right path. That's going to be the hot topic for the coming years, probably the coming decade. We are at the OECD launching this inclusive forum on carbon mitigation approaches as a way to engage finance ministers because climate change will not be addressed by environment ministers, but by finance ministers, by finance mechanisms for the financing of the transition, but also by, by putting a price tag on the emissions which, which uh, are responsible for climate change. Uh, 
So that's that's going to be the big, the big hard, difficult topic in the next 10 years. I, I may add, if we do pure speculation, maybe one day here in this country, you will have to move to a VAT. I know it's a, it's not a four-letter word, it's a three-letter word, but, but that may be uh, an issue here. And if the US moves there, th I mean, it, it will it will have some, some consequences. I, I don't see this right now, but, but it's in the background, given the amount of the deficit of the US and so. But not the hot topic of the day. Hot topic of the day is climate change. That was Pascal Santamon speaking with Bloomberg tax reporter Isabel Gottlieb. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz, with help from Meg Shreve. Rachel Daigle is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.